I don't care how hardcore the criminals or gang members or people in the neighborhoods, because oftentimes I, I knew them. Uh, some of them were related to me. So I never really, and even as I, my career at LAPD, most of my career was spent in South LA. You know, so that was always well, where I felt comfortable. You know, so I didn't fear the community as much as I feared, you know, what would my next encounter with LAPD or the Sheriff's Department or Beverly Hills PD or one of those agencies was going to look like. Hey, Black and Blue fam, welcome to the latest edition of the Black and Blue podcast. My name is Dale, and I'm the host, like it says right there on the screen there. Hey, thank you for joining me for this show, because this is a very special edition of the Black and Blue podcast. This is the street life version of the show, if I can get that up. This is the street life version of the Black and Blue podcast, where I bring the Black and Blue podcast out of the studio and into the streets. Today, I am at the uh, police facility of one of the uh, most storied and beautiful uh, institutions of higher learning in our country. Hey, but before I get to that, hey, make sure you like, share, and subscribe this show on any one of my platforms. You can find me everywhere at Black and Blue US. All right, so like I said, I'm at one of our country's most storied universities. I'm talking about uh, the University of California at Los Angeles. You know it better as UCLA. And uh, I'm here sitting here at their police facility with their chief. Say, so everybody, Black and Blue fam, help me welcome to the show Chief John Thomas. How you it, doing, sir? It is a pleasure to be here, Dale. I've been a fan of Black and Blue podcast for, for a while, and it's, a, it's an honor to, to be included uh, to help uh, tell a story. Tell, you know, not my story, but a story. <laughs> a story, absolutely, absolutely. How you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing very well. All and right. uh, it's a blessing to be here. Um, UCLA, I went here as an undergrad, and to be able to come back and serve first as the interim, and uh, after a national search, uh, they decided they'd stick with me. So uh, I'm probably the first to hear it. But All right, be, congratulations. It'll, <laughs> it'll be public knowledge soon. But uh, I, I'm grateful to be here, grateful to serve. You know, mm -hmm. And this is my, entering my 40th year of service. Um, and uh, the moment it stops being fun, the moment I feel like I can't contribute, the moment I feel like it's time to move on, I'll do exactly that. But right now, uh, 
I'm here as the chief of UCLA Police Department. All right, absolutely. To be here. Love it, love it. Fun fact, I started my law enforcement career right here at UCLA. Oh, did you? Yeah. Outstanding. Way back in 2000. Um, well, actually, it was my second agency. I started at the Border Patrol in the 90s, and then I came here for only a year. And uh, so that was way back in 2000, 24 years ago. Well, welcome. Yeah, this <laughs> is, I always tell people that, that served here, this is home. If you put some time in here and contributed to our legacy and the foundation, this is your home too. So welcome. Yeah, yeah. Welcome Br back. Brings back some, some memories. Things look, look <laughs> a, a little, little different, different, but yeah, yeah this, is, this is a great campus and, and uh, we'll talk about all that here. So uh, you've been here since how long now? I've been here exactly a year, uh, December 27th. So I'm, um, you know, a year and some months. Okay. So, all right. um, and it looks like I'll be here for yes, some more yes, years. Yes, indeed. And where'd you, where'd you come from before that? Uh, gosh, I started my career at LAPD. I started my career in 1984, uh, Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, I left there in 2006, uh, retired at the level of lieutenant, and um, was about to make captain. I made a decision that it would, um, I wanted to seek some difficult and, and more challenging type of police work, and I, I certainly found it at, in campus policing. Um, after LAPD, my first campus policing uh, position. I was the uh, deputy chief of police at uh, the University of District of Columbia where I got a chance to work with one of probably the premier mentor for so many black campus chiefs, uh, Robbie Robinson, who you know passed away a few years ago. But uh, if you ask m many of the black campus chiefs at some point or another, uh, Robbie mentored us. He was kind of the godfather of campus policing for so many of us. And that's where I started off. Someone told me, you know, when I decided to go into campus policing, if you ever get a chance to work for Robbie Robinson, take the chance. And he had a position opened at the University District of Columbia where he was the chief, and he brought me in as deputy chief, and I spent a year there. And um, it, was, it was an amazing year. Um, and then uh, after that, uh, um, my mom became sick, and I had to come back to California. USC had a captain's position opened up. I applied for that, got that, promoted to assistant chief, and then capt, uh, chief of police, chief of the Department of Public Safety. USC is private, so they don't have a police department. It's a public safety department. And uh, spent 16 years there. In the last nine, I was the chief of the Department of Public Safety at USC. I tried to retire. <laughs> <laughs> I, I retired yeah. and, and probably spent a year doing consulting and actually USC kept me on as a special advisor to the senior vice president of administration. And then I get, uh, I get contacted by UCLA to see if I would be interested in being the interim chief for a year because the chief just retired, uh, Tony Lee. Um, went through that process and Spent a year as an interim, uh, didn't expect to fall in love with it, um, didn't feel like that uh, there were any more challenges in front of me to seek and get here and all of that. I loved it and some very good, uh, unique challenges. So as I entered my 40th year, um, um, LAPD, University District of Columbia, mm -hmm. USC, and now here. All right. Talk about some of the differences between LAPD and campus, please. Yeah, I'll say not just LAPD, but I would say the difference between municipal 
and um, campus policing in general. Uh, and having been a part of both, you know, major major city department like LAPD, which I, I did it all. I did, you know, the undercover narcotic stuff. I did uh, gangs. I did all the assignments that I wanted to, to do. I got to be the adjutant to two chiefs of police, Bernard Parks and Bill Bratton. So I knew LAPD intimately well. And one of the things I didn't do when I re did retire, I stayed on with LAPD as a reserve. So there was really no disconnection between my LAPD career other than the fact that I was working for free at that point as a reserve and right. <laughs> you know people will question my sanity yes, for that exactly. but at the same free time <laughs> free so yeah, so I knew LAPD intimate, intimately well um, and I will say this you know I have find, found for me that the transition one many don't make the transition successfully from municipal to campus policing Many officers and uh, folks that have held command positions in municipal agencies get over to campuses and find that it's, it's much more difficult. And not so much of the police, the, the enforcement stuff, but just the transition to, you're beholden to so many people. You oh, know, yeah. uh, you cannot, I, I, I say this in all candor, you can't fake community policing on a university campus. You have to be about building relationships because one you have a very transitory population you get students in every year every semester every quarter and they're constantly coming in and out there's a big transition at the beginning of the year they come in and at the end of the year this commencement so you're constantly you're constantly uh, building relationships because that's your primary stakeholder group so mm -hmm. in that piece alone that's very unique and very different from municipal. You, municipal policing, you get assigned to an area, you're responsible for that. You get to know kind of the flow, the ins and outs, and you can get, you can get locked into uh, a routine of one size fits all. I know this community, I know what works here. University, particularly a big division one university like USC and UCLA, it's a global institution. You have students from all over the world. You have mm -hmm. students from across the country. Even the students that look like you, their their backgrounds are, yeah. may not be like yours. I grew up in South LA, and I had the assumption early on, yeah, surely they understand, you know, that. And right. I came to realize they didn't, you know. So you're constantly not only educating, but you're learning. At the same time, you still got to be about ensuring the safety of that environment. And one thing that's a Another unique challenge to this demographic and this stakeholder group, they're between the ages of 18 and roughly 22, 23. That age group, they don't think bad things happen, <laughs> can happen to them, you know, yeah, as being a, a father. I, I got two in college, <laughs> I know. They I don't. Know. You know, they don't want to lock doors. They don't want to secure their property. They look around and they see that everybody has pretty much what they have. Everybody has an iPhone until you explain to them not everybody has an iPhone and that there's people that will come specifically into this environment to become predators and take those things because it's an easy environment to prey on. So there's a lot of different dynamics that make campus policing a lot more challenging. And I think the biggest nuance is you've got to evolve. You've got to evolve with what's relevant today may not be relevant tomorrow. What is a hot topic 
in a municipality, for instance, what's happening um, in the Middle East, it may not be a big deal in your particular city or where you live and where you work as an officer. But it is on these major university campuses, yep. you know, the protests and, and building those relationships and ensuring the safety and wellness of everyone. So um, for those reasons alone, I, I, I look at and I often tell my municipal counterparts, when they look at and hear some of the things that we have to deal with, um, they understand. Uh, but I do, me personally, think it's far more challenging yeah. uh, in this environment, having been at LAPD and also being in contact still with command officers and the, the past few chiefs. Yeah, yeah. I had a real interesting experience here, too, uh, those fond memories. Uh, you brought up, you know, protest. I mean, just in the year I was here, there were, we had protests on campus. There was a, I guess, prime minister or president oh. or something from Iran that came in, and he had the Secret Service and, and DSS up on roofs, and, and it was snipers, and, you know, he was giving a speech, <laughs> and they were throwing tomatoes at him, and we had riot gear, and LAPD and the, and the CHP was out here helping us out. It was, you know, oh, yeah. that was just here on uh, UCLA. So, oh, yeah. You know. No, don't. A, a whole nother story is when President Obama came to USC, back in 2010 and we had to secure him being there and the university decided we want to have business as usual we want to still have classes and you can only imagine how that sit with the secret service and everybody else but at the same time we pulled it off but those are things that are uniquely you understand it because you've you've you've, you've experienced it but there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of pieces to it that you may be able to get away with shutting down certain things in a city because the president's there. And yes, you're going to do that if they tell you that. But there's, also, there's always some, um, some nuances that are different on a college campus than they are in a city. Yeah, yeah. And this campus is, is large. It's like a city within itself, right? This and USC, right? Oh, yeah. Well, not only that, you know, just like USC... They're expanding. Uh, yeah. I've been here a year, and UCLA has, you know, uh, expanded and, and bought some significant properties. Uh, Palos Verdes. There's a campus now in Palos Verdes. They just bought, you know, the uh, or just uh, acquired the um, um, Westside Pavilion. Um, and the other piece is um, downtown. They just opened. They just purchased a facility. So. The dynamics of everything being in one place is actually becoming antiquated because there's so many different pieces to a university. There's a research, research piece. Um, and then there's also now a greater demand for universities to diversify and have online classes and be remote and have places in places and have facilities in places that um, they traditionally didn't. USC has a facility in Washington, D.C. now. So universities are no longer stagnant, and as a chief, you're still responsible for ensuring um, security and safety at all of those places. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, I went to the uh, University of, of Redlands for my master's, and uh, we were back east a couple summers ago, and I saw a University of Redlands campus out there. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Was, well, yeah. there's an there's a Arizona State campus here in Los Angeles, yeah, yeah. downtown. So those common walls that used to exist and you say well I know where UCLA is and I know where USC is well you better pull out a map and you better <laughs> it better be right. if you're talking about you know where they have facilities 
it's all over the place. Yes. So what's you guys' responsibility for those, you know, at least here in this, in this metropolitan area? Well, first and foremost, it's not practical for us to have officers in all those places, but right. we do have to have liaison, and we do have to uh, ensure that uh, whatever the contract of security is that is in place here, that we have a direct communication with, and that they're well versed on what are what are the requirements um, that we have as far as reporting crimes and uh, the annual security report and things like that. The other thing is, a chief, you know, you're um, you're responsible for student studying abroad, and people don't realize that. Wherever there are students studying abroad, you have somewhat a responsibility, and you have to get that data from wherever those students are studying, anywhere in the world. Wow. So it's, uh, it, uh, it's changing, you know, and I came into the profession in, in uh, 2006, campus policing, and just a reporting responsibility and the classifications and all, Title IX, all those things that are now in place that weren't as, um, that weren't as prevalent then um, they currently are. Yeah. Talk about the job of a UC police officer. It's, it is a fully sworn. Yeah, we're a fully, fully sworn police department. Um, California Post trained and everything that a municipal officer. Um, but our fo focus pr is primarily uh, the UCLA. And not just the campus, it's pretty much the majority of uh, where a lot of our officers patrol is around outlying um, residence halls that are out, you know, a mile, mile and a half, two miles away. So our responsibility is not only to safeguard the main campus, but also those other places where students live in the close proximity to the university. And of course, obviously, preparing for, you know, um, whatever the incidents are uh, involving um, um, safety and security. Yeah. Um, not just from an enforcement standpoint, but from planning um, large-scale events, um, uh, demonstrations, um, um, controversial, quote-unquote, controversial speakers that come to campus, mm -hmm. um, you name it. So our, our job is pretty much, for the most part, whatever a municipality does for their city and within their jurisdiction, same thing for us. Yeah. And being a full-fledged police department, we have investigations, uh, we file our own reports, um, all of those things. So yeah. um, pretty much the same, I think, just because we're attached to, but really, when you think of the University of California, we're, we're more in alignment to the state when it comes to, right. as opposed to um, uh, a campus that's not a part of a statewide system. Exactly. So. Yeah, I remember when I worked here, it, you, know, you bring up the, the state part. Um, we are in the city of L.A. right now, and it, things may have changed since, you know, just 24 years ago, but, you know, they would say, yeah, you can go out in L.A. and, and do whatever you want to do as a police officer, but your responsibility is here on campus. Here, make sure, here on campus. Yeah, make sure things, when something jumps off here on campus, you have you're to, here. Yeah, you have to be here uh, as your first priority. Yep. And, uh, and, and that gets a little blurred. I yeah. saw it probably more so at USC. USC, even though USC is not a police department, patrolling around the neighborhood uh, around USC. So their jurisdiction, based upon the memorandum of understanding with LAPD, allowed for them to patrol 
uh, in and around the university. And that's good, and that can be some negatives to that. The good is that uh, they become very familiar, and students that live in the community, there's a sense of safety and security based upon you know the relationship that they have with those officers and the university. But where it gets a little confusing is the community also benefits, and they tend to call. They tend to call uh, USC Department of Public Safety because they felt like, one, um, they're not as busy as LAPD Southwest. They will get there quicker. And two, over time, those relationships build with the community as well. And LAPD, it works because LAPD, there's a relationship there, and it actually is a force multiplier for them. Yeah, so. yeah, yep. So, you know, you, you started your career with LAPD, and then a couple of the jurisdictions you worked with, like I said, LA, UCLA is in LA, so is USC. What was that kind of relationship with, with you and, and, and them? You know, it's interesting because I, probably because I went here as an undergrad, I always, I always had good communications with all of the chiefs. From 2006, all the chiefs that were here at UCLA, they knew me, we, we talked regularly. Um, one of the things I put in place um, when I was at, when I became chief at USC, was for the USC-UCLA football game, where um, um, we, would, we would partner up and I would send officers uh, to, I would send officers to the games, um, um, gosh, I would send officers to the Rose Bowl mm -hmm. when the game was there and vice versa, they would send officers. Because again, the one other, dynamic when it comes to campus versus municipal policing when it comes to students. Students would much rather deal with municipal police than the campus police. Yep. Campus police, they know that that impacts a lot more. If you give them a citation yeah. <laughs> from LAPD, oh, they'll take that all day long because mom and dad may not find out about it mm -hmm. and that may not impact their academic standing with the university. When it's a campus police officer, all of that is true, but also there's another pipeline where it goes to student judicial, and that they're held more held, they can be held more accountable uh, that way as well. Yeah. Um, so it it it's always been a good positive relationship. Uh, before I started here, uh, I knew some of the officers here, I knew some of the command staff folks here, uh, I knew the chief. Um, so it was, you know, when it comes to safety, you know, the rivalry piece is important but all that stuff goes out, out out the window when they had their incident here some years ago uh, I remember calling the chief and saying hey do you need anything when we had our incidents over at USC hey JT is there anything you need over there at USC um, that, that doesn't mean that we 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 didn't respect the rivalry because I if anybody will tell you at USC I've always been a Bruin even though I worked at USC they will tell you now, JT is a Bruin. I did. I've never. Yeah, I'm surprised they let you in the door over there. <laughs> you know, I caught a lot. I caught a lot of uh, a lot of flack. You know, at times. You know, good natured, obviously, but they knew. They knew. Uh, and so when I got over here, um, it just nobody was really surprised at USC. Yeah. They really were. You're home. I was home. home. Yeah. You're home. Yeah. So going back how, when you started your career, what, what was you said you grew up in South L.A.? South L.A. What kind of drove you towards law enforcement to begin with? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting, interesting path because I tell people, you know, I've told this story so many times, I never had a great relationship 
with the police until I became one. Mm -hmm. Seriously, growing up in South LA, um, it was just common and you just accepted certain things. You accepted the fact that, you know, uh, at any time you could get stopped, you know, and you would be talked to in a way was, that was, uh, you know, I, I'll just call it what it's disrespectful. Uh, you could get stopped without provocation. Uh, and it happened to me. You know, I never had uh, any involvement in crime or anything like that, but I was guilty by association because of the neighborhoods that I grew up in. Yep. Um, well, how do you know this person? And that was that was that was a, a, a strong hindrance, hindrance that that delayed my processing at LAPD because a background investigator continually asked me questions. Well, how do you know this person? You're an associate, and I'm not. No, I'm not. He lived mm -hmm. down the street. How am I? How am I not gonna know him? Yep. So it was those kinds of things that almost prevented me from becoming. Um, coming on to LAPD, but the reality is, uh, as I said, you know, I, I didn't have a single encounter with a police officer between <laughs> growing up in South LA and even when I was a student here at UCLA as I was commuting, because I only lived on campus one year, but I commuted back to South LA. And uh, sometimes the, the biggest challenge for me was my commute from Westwood to, you know, uh, Santa Barbara and Western, which is where I lived, you know, um, and not, you know, if I'd get stopped that week, when I got stopped that week, because my path was, I'd drive down Wilshire Boulevard, because my car was so beat up, I couldn't get on the freeway, it'd mm -hmm. fall apart. So my path was, i take Wilshire all the way down to Western, and i make that, that you know, uh, turn and, and start heading south on um, um, Western to home. And uh, it's a dangerous place to travel, particularly at night yeah. as I'm driving through, you know, <laughs> Westwood, Beverly Hills, West L.A. Uh, so, that so, the, was, so the danger on that was encounters with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then when you got to your own neighborhood, the dangers were the neighborhood. You know, the, the neighborhood, I, because I was so familiar with it, I, I always felt comfortable in the neighborhood. Okay. I, I, I did, you know, um, um, and maybe it was because when I was growing up in South LA, um, it wasn't uh, the lines of demarcation as to whether you were affiliated or not affiliated with gangs wasn't as stringent as it later became. Mm -hmm. You had a choice back then. You could know gang members and you could live on a block and there was, an exp there was no you're going to do something for the set then. It was, no, he's cool, he lives here, he may have some relatives that's caught up, but he cool, you know. That was kind of the way it was, you know. Uh, so I never feared, I don't care how hardcore the criminals or gang members or people in the neighborhood, because oftentimes I, I knew them, uh, some of them were related to me. So I never really, and even as I, my career at LAPD, most of my career was spent in South LA. You know, so that was always where I felt comfortable, you know. So mm -hmm. I didn't fear the community as much as I feared, you know, what would my next encounter with LAPD or the Sheriff's Department or Beverly Hills PD or one of those agencies was going to look like and right. whether or not, you know, because I had a tendency to sometimes, you know, until I wised up, 
I'd ask questions. Well, why did you stop me? And sometimes that simple question alone was enough to get me handcuffed yep. or sit in the back seat of the car. All those kinds of things. Yeah. So, how, how, do you, how do you think that experience played into your policing style? Very little tolerance once I became a supervisor and rose through the ranks that I had zero, zero patience or toleration, toler, to, tolerated violating people's civil rights. It just was not. And one of the things I think uh, if you ask any officer that, that has, have ever worked for me, if you ever want to get on his bad side, <laughs> do something like that, yep. you know. And, and here's the thing. I get some of where that comes from, but I think as a leader in a police organization, you have an obligation to weed that stuff out. And when I say weed that stuff out, over time, you have to be very mindful of the fact that officers get cynical. Black officers get cynical. Uh, all officers do. But your job as a police leader is to be mindful and look for those things. We both know when you sit down with young people or people that are coming into the profession, they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They mm -hmm. can tell you all about the community, what they want to do and how they want to save the world and how they believe in diversity and all those things. You talk to that same person, that officer, two to three years later and and I was no exception. They start, you start thinking, well, I've been lied to. You know, everybody is innocent. Uh, nobody has done what, you know, they have been alleged to do or you caught them doing or it was reported to them, reported to you that they did. None of that. So over time, you know, uh, you, become, you become very cynical. And I think that mindful leaders in police organization have an obligation to not only uh, acknowledge that, but also have training and put measures in place to do that. And I think the best way to do that is you have to open up your department to outside perspectives. And you also have to be willing to, uh, to look and hire people from various backgrounds for places like South LA, yeah, yeah. you know. How, how do you combat that, that cynicism that you get over time that we all experience? Because like you just said, you know, we've been lied to and, and you see, I mean, in, in law enforcement, we, we get, we really encounter the worst of the worst most mm -hmm. of the time. People at their worst day, people acting their worst, and that's what we see day in and day out. How do you kind of combat that within well, your, I think your the ranks? Well, I think the education has to be ongoing, and, and the education has to continually be along the lines of non-traditional, uh, I don't even call it training, but education, because I think there's some pieces that need to be explained to officers to help them understand why is it that, you know, black people, uh, by and large, in black communities, um, uh, marginalized communities, react to the police the way they do. Why do Latino or Latinx people react the certain way to the police the way they do? And I think we don't teach enough about the history of how did we get to that? How did, how did the black community get to where, um, um, by and large, very suspicious and non-trusting of police? That didn't happen overnight. Yep. I experienced it, I believe that too. But I think we don't do enough in educating uh, officers as to why. Here's the history why. And the history goes back to, you know, far back as slavery and all the way up through the civil rights. When you see those signs that said white only 
or this, you know, back of the bus. That was the law. Mm. Who enforced that? The police. So our parents knew this coming from the South that yes, regardless of how unfair you may think or how unequal or how biased a law was, that was what was in place and it has been ingrained. And I don't think we teach uh, our officers enough about this is why, you know. And once you understand this is why a community responds to you that way, you, you are better equipped to understand and emphasize with it. Because if you don't put anything in place, it becomes, well, they don't want me in this community anyway. I don't want to be here anyway. Yeah. This is just a job to me. They the ones that have to live here. And all these things that I heard when I was, <laughs> unfortunately, when I, I heard from partners when I was, you know, working during the 92 um, civil unrest. Oh, yeah. Oh, Those yeah. were the things that I, as someone who grew up in South L.A., I listened to and heard my partners say things like, well, they're the ones that have to live here. Let them tear down their place. Yeah. But I think we don't do enough to teach young officers about the history of the communities that we put them in but we also don't tell them about the trauma, the trauma that those communities, the unaddressed issues and trauma that impact that community. The under, the under um, performing schools, um, the lack of you know, facilities for them to even purchase you know, healthy foods. These are the things that cause a, a community and the people in that community to not only respond the way they do to police, respond the way they do to each other. And I don't think we teach them enough. Is that our responsibility? Probably not, but who does it benefit? It benefits yeah. those young officers uh, that are going out there and we're asking them to do a very difficult job and they're wondering, man, I came here, I, you know, I'm not racist. I don't, I'm not biased. I don't have anything against, you know, you name what the people are, mm -hmm. but over time, unchecked, where else are they going to go with that? And oftentimes we have a whole generation, my generation did a very poor job of enlightening and, and you know, and, and educating, but I think it was a product of we didn't get it. Yeah. But I think one of the solutions, and this goes back to the retention and recruitment, you got to be willing to recruit folks from those communities and you got to put things in place to provide a clear path and my, my path was not, you know, the traditional path, you know. Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, had it not been the, for the intervention of one person, I'd have never came on L got on LAPD because my background investigator seemed hell-bent on trying to get me to say, and once I said it, I would be immediately disqualified, yep. and that is I'm associating, I'm an associate with gang members. I would just say, I know them because they lived on the street. And at one point I had to tell my background investigator, did, I asked a simple question. Did you have a choice of where you were born and the family you were born into? And he said, no. And I said, neither did I. Mm -hmm. That's where I was born. <laughs> That's where I grew up. Facts. And those were my friends. Wow. Facts. And they still are. Yep. They still were. Yeah. So, but I think that we don't do a good job in... Um, teaching officers about the communities that we're putting them into prior to, prior to and all along the way while they're in there. Yep. And bringing in community members to be a part of those dialogues and those conversations because once you get into these marginalized communities, they want, they want safe streets. 
You know, they're the ones that are suffering the most. Mm -hmm. And bring them in and have them a part of the dialogues. That's why one of the things I constantly throughout my, at, at least once I became a chief at USC, working with interventionists. Okay. That has been um, critical. I don't think we do enough of that. Yeah. You mentioned earlier you were talking about uh, the 92 civil unrest and everything that came about that and, and why that jumped off in the first place. And then we're back here in 2020. Same issues again, a lot of it to do with policing and how marginalized communities are, are viewed and, and acted upon. What's your thoughts on where we were then and are we any, any better off today? You know what? I would say we're better off in those places that have embraced change. But you and I both cannot sit here and say that some of these little small bedroom departments in places throughout the country get it <laughs> they, mm. they, because not all of them do and the reality is uh, do I think we're better I think by and large yes uh, I think one of the, 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 the great blessings has been body-worn cameras because you know for many many years um, certain segments of the population have said these things have been happening always and now all of a sudden it's being captured on video I, I, that's a, it's a simple question, and I wish I could say wholesale things are universally better. I think they are, but we're one incident away from something being captured on yeah. video that throws everything back to square one. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the solution is we have to really look at how are, and I, I catch some flack when I say that. The standards should be somewhat nationalized. You should not be able to expect that your officers certain things that they're not going to be familiar with at all. Um, one of the first things I did at USC was right after George Floyd, and I do that whenever there's a controversial situation or something like that impacting all of law enforcement. I think there's lessons there, and I have the officers look at that and to discuss what what is expected of you. Would you have the intestinal fortitude of saying, man, get off of him. You know, that's enough. And if he didn't, push him off. I mean, that takes a lot of guts. Yeah. And, yeah. and you and I both know you're probably not going to be much welcomed when you go back to the station. The reality, the sad reality is because another spin is going to put on, be put on what really happen yeah, but yeah. you have to be able to do that yeah I mean easier said than done for people you know of our stature and, and our tenure to be able to tell somebody else um, but that other, one of those officers at the at the scene was was a rookie easier said than done to be able to tell a senior officer hey but that, that's what we're required even back then but especially now with SB2 and duty, yeah. duty intercede and all that nowadays in, yep. in California and I think that that's I mean the we're We've got to get comfortable with that's just the norm. Yep. You know, if you don't do that, here's what can happen. And that's what I, what I, what I tell officers. Do you want to be, whether you're a rookie or not, being now you're the poster boy or woman for um, bad policing or the need for reform or once again the entire profession being labeled as uh, institutionally racist institutions yep. and and by and large that's not the case definitely not yeah but but 
but I think that's, I think the answer lies in a total retooling of how we educate officers and prepare them, not just in the academy, but throughout their career. We don't focus on those things. We don't even focus enough on wellness mm -hmm. because one of the, the primary issues is someone saw that officer throughout his career, he didn't just get like that. He got comfortable with, with engaging in that, that level of misconduct. And people saw it, but at a certain point, you know, there's a tendency to label the other parts of what he may have been doing good. Oh, he's a good cop. He's bringing in felonies. He's getting guns off the street. He's doing this, 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 and this. Well, none of that matters anymore. The reality is the most important thing is, one, that he treats people uh, constitution constitutionally correct, and he doesn't violate their civil rights. Yep. And I think those are the things when I look at training where we need to go, um, and it has to evolve to a more holistic because it's expected of us. We're expected now to... Um, embrace um, transformation, uh, reform, and then on top of that, we're sending these young officers out to do a very difficult job that is a result of largely some broken systems, broken mental health system, broken, you know, system to deal with the unhoused population, you know, uh, all of those things that by virtue of us being 24-7, uh, and when someone calls and says, hey, you know, uh, there's a crazy guy, you know, in the middle of, you know, Manchester and Normandy and he's swinging a, a you know, a pipe and he's <laughs> trying to hit cars and, you know, he's got yep. no clothes on. And it's 10 o'clock at night. Yep. And what are the officers going to do? They got to go there and they got to deal with that situation. Yep. Still going to be us. It's not going to be a social worker. It's not going to be a social worker. Yep. And at the end of the day, what is going to be, once they neutralize that situation and get them into custody, what is there to transition that individual to get that individual some help? There's nothing. Yeah. Yep. So too much, in my opinion, has been placed on the burden of law enforcement to fix some things that, we're not responsible for, but by virtue of 24-7 and what is in place, yep. Yep. you know. It's been like that for a long time, you know, uh, you know, call the police whenever something's, you know, happening, whether how small it is, hey, call the police and they'll deal with it, you know, just more and more stuff getting, getting put on our plates. It is. Yeah. It is, and at a certain point, you know, um, society has to look at, you know, we can't continue this way. And, and, and let's, let's be honest. The reason those other systems are not in place to do more other than what the officers do, take the person off the street, maybe 5150 them, 72 hours, or arrest them yep. in short term, and they're back out there doing it again within days, sometimes, you know, within hours now. The reality is, the reason why there's nothing else to help that person on the other end is because it costs money. Money, yep. <laughs> it costs money. Unfortunately, that's always the root of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So it's easier to call the police. It's easier because they can come and put a Band-Aid on it and hope for the best, but we're, we now have a generation of officers who look at, will somebody help us? They've given us the authority to do what? 
and the, the what is, what they're doing is cyclical. It's, it's a revolving door. Yeah. And that's not their fault. And that's not law enforcement's fault. Um, and that's not benefiting those, uh, those marginalized communities either. Yeah. Because oftentimes these are their loved ones. This is somebody's nephew out there and somebody's son, daughter, or whatever, swinging that pipe. And what happens when the officer is in an unfortunate situation, the officer has to protect themselves or protect someone, and that person loses a life. city pays millions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I want to go back to, you know, the, the officers out there on the street. 99% of them are doing, you know, the right thing out there. Quite and it's, it's that small, minuscule amount that's out there doing the, the, the wrong thing. Uh, you talked about earlier about body cams, you know, showing, mm -hmm. you know, possibly something uh, going, gone awry with the, with the police stop. But 99% of the time, those those body cams are showing what the officers are doing right. Yeah. Um, so you know that that's another benefit. Transparency. Well, on transparency. That. But I also think we don't do <laughs> we don't do a good job of telling those stories because by and large, officers go out. They don't want the attention. They don't. Yeah. It's like I just did my job. Yep. But again, you know, it's a larger the larger issue is why isn't the media picking up on it? And I know the answer to that. Clicks. Yeah. Yep. It doesn't sell. It doesn't sell. It's nobody's going to click and tune in to this officer for you know for the last two months. You know we found out that this officer has been dipping into his or her own pocket and feeding this family because they know that they're in a bad way. I, I can't tell you how many times I've discovered officers doing things like that. And didn't even want me as a chief to know. And then I find out, and I'm like, how come nobody, you know, said anything? Or, mm -hmm. you know, when, you know one, <laughs> one of my good friends is this guy named Dion Joseph, and he he's works Skid Row. Oh, yeah. yeah and he, Dion, he's been on the show. Yeah, yeah Dion yeah. does phenomenal work. I mean, and he's found his calling, and his passion is Skid Row. It's a job that most cops don't want to do. But... You know, let let Dion get into a quote-unquote controversial incident, or he'll be all over the news in yeah. a bad way. Yeah. But you and I know that that guy comes to work day in, day out, wears his heart on his sleeve, and truly loves the down and out and skid and roll. Yeah, and has helped many, many people get off the street. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It's not that, sexy. That, that, you know, I started a, a new segment of this show called you know. The Black and Blue Review. Check that out. And uh, what I do is I show body cam footage of you know whether it's good or bad or what the police officers have done. But I've shown that to you know the segment with regular citizens out on the street. So if it's just you and I talking about it and we agree what the cops did is right, of course the, the viewers are gonna say, oh, of course they agree with them. You know, it's yeah, two yeah. cops. But if it's me as the police officer and you as the plumber and we both agree what the officer did was correct, or me as a police officer and you as the teacher both agree. Now it's a different story. Yeah, because of the body cam footage. Because of body, yeah. And here's the thing, you know, body cam footage. It's been a it's been a plus, and you know, but at the same time, um, I can't say that I can't think of any way that it's been negative. But at the same time, it's like we're saying, ninety nine point five percent of that footage is good, honest police work. Officers going out doing what the community expects of them doing what their cities, doing what their departments expect of them. And that 1% is what makes the news. Thanks. And again, that's, that is what it is. But the reality is, um, at a certain point, uh, 
if we're going to ever get to a place where the community is truly engaged with the departments in a way that's meaningful, that has to change because in the end, we're only as good as the community is willing to work with us. And right now, we're at an inflection point because you got a large segment that don't trust the police, don't understand what we do, and those encounters and those peering back the curtains to look at, this is what police work is all, all about. It's kind of like when you know you send the media or community members and you put them in those uh, FATS, FOT simulators where yes. they, they yeah. have to make a split level decision, shoot, don't shoot yeah. situation. It's, it become crystal clear. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, including people in the media, said, I had no idea that things happen that fast. And the reality is you don't have a whole bunch of time to make that split level decision. And that split level decision, you've got to get right most of the time. Yeah. And, uh, but those are the things that I think we need to demystify and we need to bring more of the public into our realm and to our world to understand what we, what we have to contend with. You know? and, and how do we do that if the media doesn't want to do it? If the media doesn't want to do it. But I think part of it is you know, if the media doesn't want to do it, legislators need to at least do it. But again, you know, there's so many false narratives about what the truth is and what police do and what police don't do and what police are responsible for as far as social ills and all of that stuff that we're not. The reality is, you know, uh, they've got to do a better job too, elected officials in, in supporting because one of the things that, you know, I think when I'm dealing with young people, you know, and they have their perceptions of, of the police. And a lot of their perceptions was based upon not even having encounters with the police. At least I had encounters with them. I had a reason to not like the police. And most of my friends had a very valid reason to not. But many of them, they don't have a, they've never had a contact with the police. But they have taken pretty extreme positions when it comes to the need for law enforcement. Not the validity of what they do, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Many just think we don't even need cops. And the reality is, if you live in one of those communities like South LA and East LA, yeah, you, you do need the police. And they have, those community members will tell you, we want our officers, and we want, but we want our officers, we want to know them. It's not, it's not, they're not asking for much. Yeah, yeah. Do you find a population here, um, because UCLA is, is you know, cream of the crop of the UC schools this in Berkeley, right? Mm -hmm. And USC is another premier institution. Um, the clientele here, the student body here is a, maybe a little different than say Cal State LA or Cal State Fullerton. And, you know, and, and maybe those attitudes towards police are a little different. I think you got to look at it from a generational standpoint. Okay. Gen Z, Gen, Gen X. I think they all, they all look at it from the same lens and because again I think social media has played a huge impact on all of those perceptions and I think George Floyd and COVID all those factors have played into kind of a universal perception of the police and the devaluing of what we do and who we are I think it has been more universal than that so I think that if you were to even you know talk to students at Cal State LA or Northridge you would probably hear the same things you hear at a USC and okay. a UCLA. I think, uh, I'm pretty sure you would. Okay. Because uh, I think 
you know, that's the downside of social media is so many have um, subscribed to some things that are, as, as I've been in this profession now, almost going on 20 years campus, is some things that I see that are a little bit more disturbing um, than when I was a student. Right. There was no cancel culture when I was a student. When I was a student and my friends that were from various backgrounds that were different from mine, uh, mind you, when I grew up in South LA, I never sat in a class from K kindergarten to graduating at Crenshaw High School. I never sat in a class with a person that wasn't either largely, probably vast majority black and maybe a few, you know, um, Latino people. Um, that was my reality. Then I get here and I'm it's a melting pot, pot, and my friends and the people that I, I associated with were from various backgrounds. My roommate, you know, was Chinese. So the reality is um, when they, we had these conversations and they were addressing stereotypes, and I was talking to them, and I'm pushing past stereotypes that I had about their cultures, nobody got offended. Today there's a cancel culture that if you didn't know, you should have known. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> I think you know college is supposed to be that that place where you learn these certain things. If you grew up in only you know a black or brown neighborhood, mm -hmm. and you come here to a place like UCLA, and you get to to interact with different and that's people, what it did races, for me. Different cultures, different all that. That know. was that's what it did for me. But now I think, and largely because of social media, people get canceled out all the time. Uh, you know that you know if there's a level of and I don't think many of them will even admit it, the level of intolerance um, that we didn't, I, at least I didn't have to experience um, as a college student. There was nothing, you know, when I, when they asked me things about South LA, like was I in a gang? Yeah, I could have gotten offended, but I also said some things that probably was pretty offensive and biased when yeah. I asked them. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't take it as, as offense because I, you know, uh, you, if. I knew by talking to them that largely they had no interactions with people like right. me. And what they saw was based upon stereotypes that were in the media. And then once they got to know me, and even when I was on LAPD, you know, and people, you know, that were from places different from South LA on the department, and I explained my situation and, you know, my contacts with the police, and, and they'd be like, JT, how could anybody not like you? You're a good guy. I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> look, yeah. they didn't see that. They didn't take the time to get to know to, to know you. So at the end of the day, and one of the things I always, it was always amazing to me on LAPD, I did a lot of writing and research on the history of black officers on LAPD. Um, I discovered the first black officer killed in the line of duty wasn't Oscar Joe Bryant in the 60s, but was Charles P. Williams in 1923. So I'd done a lot of research and I would write and I, I'd get, write these articles that got published about the history of early black LAPD. And the reality is, in my mind, I thought I was writing it for black officers because I felt they would be most beneficial and embrace it. Wasn't the case. The white officers loved it. I, to this day, I get, hey JT, when are you gonna write another article about blacks on LAPD? From white officers. So I can't say that it was people are not accepting. Or and, and when you read my stuff, it was it's not I don't soft sell any of it. Yeah, I talk about, you know, LAPD, you know, uh, didn't break down its racial 
uh, segregation until long after the military did. That black officers, um, the reason Newton Division became where all the black officers worked was because the white officers didn't want to work in the black community. I didn't soft sell any of the stuff that I wrote about, mm. but it was, it was embraced by white officers. And I would tell you, there was times where some black officers challenged the validity of, I had a black officer say, your research can't be true because LAPD didn't have any black officers in the 20s. And I'm like, well, LAPD hired a black officer in 1889. So it's, Okay. It's not as it's not you know when you when you look when I look back and think about things that people tend to to have false perceptions of and yep. beliefs about race. Sometimes it goes out the window, you know, because um, there are other people outside of your race that may be more accepting of pieces of your history and your story and your background, you know. Um, and even like I said, I, I'd have oftentimes. You know, white officers say, JT, you know, I'm, you know, almost would apologize. I'm, I'm sorry you had to go through that growing up in South L.A. I'm like, dude, that, that had nothing to do with you. That, that had nothing to do. And I'm over it. I can't, you know, we, you know, as, as black people, we can't go on and be, you know, productive if we hold those kinds of grudges, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Nice, nice. So, Chief, what's your, what's your most... Um, rewarding part of your job as, as chief here at UCLA? The, uh, the impact that I, potential impact that I have can have on the next generation of officers. When I meet and I talk to young officers that are just starting their career, uh, I get excited because I get to ask them, you know, of all the things that you could do, uh, why did you choose police work? And why did you choose here? And one of the things I'm finding out, and, and I do that with every single person that come into this organization, I did it every single person that came into organization at USC, because I want to, I want to, I want to see what's motivating. So I'm, I'm encouraged, and I think that's what you know excites me about continuing, even in my 40th year, is the impact that I can possibly have, and I, and I actually can tell my story, and where it's. There was a time where, uh, when I told my story, it it didn't resonate. You know, it, when I tell growing up in South LA and coming here to UCLA, and you know the transformation that being in a diverse environment, being you know single mother, six kids, raised on welfare, and you know coming here and didn't even have luggage, and my stuff was, I waited till other kids moved into the dorms because my stuff was in hefty bags yeah, because wow. you know yeah. but it's stuff like that and then to now sit here and be the chief of police here at UCLA I mean life is strange and even USC I grew up around USC and um, uh, coming up on that campus you know so I, I think what encourages me more than anything is being in a position to have an impact on where the profession goals. Yes. And one of the things I think and what attracts me to being in a university environment is the reality is you, you're around some of the best and brightest minds. And I always tell people, you know, um, law enforcement is not going to solve the issues that we're confronted with by themselves. These are issues that impact society. And where else can that best be 
tackled than on a university Thanks. because these are these are these are issues that deal with mental health, homelessness, uh, substance abuse, community trauma. You know, at the end of the day, South LA and the communities like South LA they didn't get like that overnight, uh, and they're not going to be solved by the police. Yet they will be the first to tell you those community members, we need the police. You know, if, if you know, we want to see more police. We, you know, because until things are, you know, stabilized to the point where I, I can feel safe going out or I can send my kids without having to worry about this and that and this and that, the reality is we're not going anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. We're not. Absolutely. And on the flip side of that, what's the, what's the more challenging part of your job as a chief? Man, jeez, that's a good question because... It depends on the day. <laughs> it really right. does. It's it really, Monday. It's Monday. It's Monday because, you know, it's, you know, we, we went through a period, you know, and we're still in it where, you know, at any given day, you know, we've had some protests here or demonstrations here that almost a thousand people on campus, you know, and making sure that, you know, both sides can express, you know, have their First Amendment, you know, voices. Um, and then safeguarding everybody else. So it depends on, and who saw this? Who saw this at the beginning of last year? Nobody did. Who saw the pandemic? Nobody did. Who saw George Floyd? And just like any other part of law enforcement, you know, the biggest challenge may not have occurred because I can talk about some of the ones that have, have, have occurred, but you know, as you know, in policing, we, 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 we got to grind through it. We got to grind through it. We got to, the job doesn't change. We still got to keep people safe. Um, but it's the curveballs that come your way that, man, it's like, I, where did that come from? Yeah. And how do I deal with it? You know? And that's where, where you have, you know, your, your network of mentors, because no chief does their job alone. Not a smart chief. I have a network of, of, campus chiefs that I can pick up the phone and, and call, hey, have you ever dealt with this? I have municipal mentors and chiefs and friends and, you know, various levels from officer level all the way up. You know, hey, what is this about? Uh, nobody does this job alone. I think n more so in law enforcement, we're connected to others in our profession um, and we're not bound by geography because, um, Something could have break off in, you know, Maine that nobody has seen before yeah. nationally. Yeah, affects, affects us out here in Cali. Yep. Yeah, no yeah, yeah, you no know, um, and uh, in campus, you know, I think the worst thing that, you know, any of us dread more than anything, active shooter. You know, if, I, if you ask me what keeps me up at night, active shooters. Yeah, there was one here a couple years ago, no? Uh, yeah, uh, probably about five or six years, about six, seven years ago. Okay. Ago. I didn't think yeah. it was that long ago, but I, yeah, I remember, oh yeah, it was, I it was a while. A, a, a professor, yes, yeah. yeah. But we had we had pff, USC. We had a we had a student he didn't use a gun, but he stabbed and killed a professor. Yeah, you know, uh, it just and one of the things just like if it hasn't happened on your campus yet, just the only reason is because it hasn't happened at your campus yeah, yet. Not, not a question of if, but when, right? <laughs> when, and you better be prepared for it, you know. So I think um, probably a better question is 
what keeps me up at night in the campus safety realm, and I would have to say uh, active shooter. Okay. And officers are going to respond and do what they do. Uh, it's just a matter of because every active shooter incident that occurs, not just on a college campus, anywhere, there's lessons learned, you know, and the shooters are becoming, evolving more. There are things that we used to do 15 years ago and 10 years ago that based upon what we've learned since that we no longer, we, we no longer um, can subscribe to that tactic yeah. anymore. Yeah, like waiting around for, for more officers before you enter. Yep. Um, Tending well, to those that have been shot, you know, you, if, if yeah, the shooter is still has not been neutralized, step over, yep. step over, yep. and that was not always the case. Yeah, yeah, just looking at the two different incidents from um, Valdi where they didn't mm -hmm. enter, and then the one in was at Memphis yeah. or Nashville, yeah, where they went in and they took out that threat right away. Yep. Um, you can see the two the yeah. two differences there. No, and those are the things that you know uh, you you train, train, train. And you hammer home, you, you, you dissect other incidents that, you know, you, you, you're constantly having to, to deal with those, yep, you know. Yep. And, I, I, you know, the, the, the thing about being in campus, as long as I've had, there's not a whole bunch, you know, knock on wood, that have not seen. I think the worst is, you know, and I think any chief will tell you, um, is losing an officer in the line of duty. And... Yep. Um, shortly after becoming chief at USC, uh, Keith Lawrence, and in a national way, Dorner's first victims yes. were Monica uh, and Keith, and Keith was an officer in my department. Yeah, and he came through my city and uh, you know, went up to Big Bear and a bunch of uh, people in my department were up in there. My, oh, yeah. My, uh, who's now deputy chief, was my sergeant at the time in, in Narcs, and we all rolled up there, and he was, he was uh, next to the deputy that that got shot by Dorner. Oh, really? Right there Big Bear. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. So it effect, affected all of us. It affected it affected all of us. You know, and uh, it, don't get me started on the protective details that had to be city everywhere. So I think if you ask me what is the absolute worst situation that I've had to deal with was that because you know um, to lose an officer in the line of duty and um, the way it happened, you know, and then at the time not even knowing until a couple of days later that this was what it was. You know, the reality is that, you know, uh, until you've had to um, give a flag to a family of a fallen officer, um, to me that's the worst. Uh, that to me is the absolute worst because you know, you recruited an individual, you know, you brought him in, and the reality is you want to make sure, as best you can, as the chief, you're, you're doing all you can to return that person back home to their families. And, you know, and through that, you know, one of my best friends became, you know, Keith's father, uh, Kevin, who we're still in contact with, and his mother, Venus. So, you know, it's, it's things like that, you know, that... Uh, um, when I think about an officer like Keith, whose career was cut down, and he was the embodiment of everything I looked for in, a, in, a, in an officer, uh, and then I owe it to him to continue, you know, to try to create more. His career may have been cut down, but yeah. the things I learned through him and the 
qualities that I saw in him, um, I can help, you know, um, breed that in other officers. Because one of the things I, you know, I remember a conversation, you know, I was having with, it might have been with his dad, and I was thinking, you know, if Dorner had known Keith, there's no way they would not have empathized with each other. <laughs> you know, um, there was a lot of, you know, he was the kind of person you just, you couldn't help but connect on some level in a good way. Yeah. And he came into law enforcement for all of the right reasons. Wanted to make a difference. Went to one agency, didn't feel like he fit there because, you know, he didn't like some of the, the ways he felt they treated, you know, marginalized people. And decided campus is more his speed and, and um, I wound up recruiting him and I was like, man, if I could just, if I could just clone this kid. And then I get the call and um, everything changed. Wow. Everything. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that was a terrible time. It really was. Yeah, yeah. It really was. So as we, as we wrap this up real quick, you know, I, di I didn't even ask you um, about the demographics of, of the PD here. Well, how large is it? How what, what's the diversity like in, in your department? It's kind it, of mirror the campus community. You know, it really it's 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 a smaller department than I had at USC. USC I had a combination of armed officers and unarmed officers. It was about three hundred and twenty-five officers that just were responsible here, sixty-five sworn officers, and we're branching out and building uh, uh, unarmed officers. Uh, contingency, um, I would say we're underdeployed. We're probably down about 10 officers, so we're probably at about 45, 55 or somewhere in there. Um, kind of like everywhere, right? Everywhere. Everywhere is short. We are hiring. <laughs> Consider UCLA, UCPD. It's a good department. Uh, you know, and I would encourage folks, don't just look at the municipal agencies. University policing is uh, if you're looking for challenges, definitely look look in look into it. But as far as the diversity, I would say we're we're very diverse. You know, um, um, I would say I couldn't give you the exact breakdown, but I would probably dare say the majority of our officers are probably Latino, uh, followed by African American, and then white. Oh, wow. Okay. We probably got about. 22%, I think we're at 22% uh, women, you know, um, you know, but, you know, we're, 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 my philosophy is, you know, you have to be intentional about diversity. You can't leave it to chance. And my recruiters, um, before I got here, that's the way they looked at how to improve and make the department better is by, you know, making it as diverse as possible because the university population student population is very diverse as you very know. diverse very yeah. diverse yep so um yeah. uh, we can we can always do better as long as i'm here and we're gonna always we're always going to be you know subscribe to be as diverse as possible i think at usc i you know similarly i think our you know um one of the things was I recruited a lot from the local community around USC. Okay. And I think one of the things that I think is going to be the biggest change and transition challenge for me is USC, 
I was from that community. I knew that community. Here, it's been such a long time since I was a part of this community, and um, I commuted back and forth to this community, uh, and I don't have the demographics around um, he, uh, here. That yeah, because here you're surrounded by Bel Air and Beverly Hills. I don't know how many people from those communities really want to <laughs> be cops. Or no, no, and that's the thing. You know, One of the things I did at USC was we had a cadet post, so we basically would take young people, uh, like the Explorer program, and take them and, you know, um, um, give them, uh, you know, put them through the Cadet Academy and uh, they wore the uniform and they volunteered. But the other thing we did was, you know, I made it um, the priority being um, college education, that my goal was not to transform them into police officers. My goal was to put them on the path to be first-generation college students and, you know, over the last my time as chief every single one of those kids that graduated from high school went on to colleges and one of the great things about it when i got here two of my cadets from usc one graduated last year and uh, the other one he's in his senior year but um they credit that program for them even coming to ucla so you know That's awesome. those type of opportunities you know, I hope I find a way to do that. If even if I got to bring kids from East LA and South LA over here, but the reality is, you know, there's, you know, I'm gonna find. I got to find a way to address the youth issues in our community through UCLA. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's, yeah. And lastly, before I get you out of here, Chief, what about some uh, some words of advice or wisdom for you know aspiring or or police officers just now getting into the profession? I would say, you know, um, one, it is a great career. I would not have been in it um, for the last 40 years if, if I didn't. Um, be true to yourself, um, um, where you came from, uh, and be mindful of the fact that don't let this job change you. Um, be a change agent within your department to the degree that you can. and. Um, um, position yourself to make a difference in those departments. Uh, that, that, may, that, that may be working in an assignment where you have more interaction with the community. That may be working in an assignment um, where you can have an impact on recruitment. Um, or it may just be, you know, working in patrol. However, you know, building relationships with the community that benefit your department. Wherever you're at, have an impact and be mindful of where this profession needs to go and that if that it's up to the individual officers to help us get there because um, um, we are, we're being, we're, again, we're at an inflection point. It's not going to stay the way it's been for the last, you know, how many, how many years it's been. We're being asked by the community and demanded. Uh, Either we can be a part of that transition and help educate and guide the community as to what what is in uh, everyone's mutual best interest, or we can just let things continue to go the way they are, where we're continuing to hear things like defund, abolish, um, which we know are not in anybody's best interest. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, be be an active participant in your career, you know, and. Like me, I, I, 
I never envisioned being a chief. I really <laughs> did. If we had more time, I could tell you how I tried to talk my way out of being the chief at USC. Um, but they saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And even here, I was intending to come and do the interim chief for a year and go back into retirement. And then I realized, you know, this has reignited my passion for, you know, the career, um, the, the, the profession, and it has allowed me the opportunity to speak to another generation of officers in a way that um, I think is important. Yep. I think you said it best right there, passion for the career. It is. It, it really is because um, um, if, you don't, if you don't enjoy this, you know, and I've enjoyed it, um, it's been a great career for me, um, why do it? You know, and I always, I always will check with my, my officers that are in training and young in their career, and I'll ask them, are you still having fun? Because this is a fun job. There's no other job, I think, that will give you the opportunity every single day you put that uniform on to make a difference, to help somebody, um, and leave a, a positive impression with one person. Uh, I wished growing up uh, in South LA that an officer, somebody would have said, you know what, kid, you know, I, I value the fact that you're trying to get an education or, you know, hey, you know, when I see you, you know, uh, or just explain to me why I was stopped mm -hmm. in, a, in a respectful manner, you know. Uh, it would have made a world of difference. And that's why I tell officers, you know, when you see young people acknowledge them you know uh, talk to them you know because um, oftentimes you may be the only p person they ever talk to and I'll real quick story I, I I was at a community conference it was a grassroots conference and it's put on at USC but it's truly grassroots I mean you're talking about people that like just got out of incarceration like a couple of that week and they're there okay. at the conference. It's really grassroots and and I was sitting at a table talking to uh, some some young people and, and one young uh, Hispanic guy just got out of uh, incarceration and you know we were talking and just and I wasn't in uniform and um, he didn't know I was a, a cop and then he went, he later went up to somebody and, and they told him yeah, that was the chief of USC you were talking to. He's like Really? And the guy later came up to me. He says, he says, man, I've never had a conversation with a police officer like that. And um, it made a difference. And I was just talking to him, um, sharing my experiences, and, and not from an authoritarian position, but, yeah, I can relate to that. Yeah, I can relate to that. Yep. Yeah, I know people. I've had relatives uh, that are incarcerated and things like that. So we connected uh, in a in a human level where there wasn't the chief and I'm a guy just got out of incarceration and I never forget he came up to me and it was he was just just flabbergasted and surprised and I said I said I put my pants on one leg at a time like you. Yeah, I said, yeah. just, it was the grace of God that I made it out. I said, the reality is you 
continue to do the things that you, you know, uh, you're doing. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no end to what you can do. And I think those kinds of conversations and those kinds of um, interactions can only happen if, um, if we initiate them. I mean, um, when we're like this, when you're in, in the uniform, yes, there's some barriers, but at the same time, um, eventually people have to get to the point where they look at even this and say, yeah, I know him. He's, you know, he, he's a Dodger fan or he, he's this and he's that. And, yeah. you know, so. Or a Niner fan, right? Or nine or five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chief. Hey, I appreciate you. Oh, no worries. Great conversation. Great conversation. Thank UCLA you for having Police me. Chief John Thomas, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank Thanks, you again Chief. for having me. And keep up the good work with the podcast. <laughs> I will. I will. Thanks, Chief.